0: a court of appeals rules that insurrectionists can be disqualified from political office overturning the district court's ruling in that madison cawthorn federal case and as it relates to madison cawthorn probably doesn't matter anymore because he is a loser elon musk is sued by twitter shareholders for tanking the Twitter stock price out in the Northern District of California. We'll break down that lawsuit for you. A New York federal court upholds legislation, a New York state legislation that is making gun manufacturers liable for the unlawful acts used with their weapons. But this is at the same time that the Supreme Court is poised to expand its understanding of the second amendment to areas where the founders clearly didn't intend the Second Amendment to go, essentially saying everybody everywhere, free of regulation, should have guns. And this comes on the heels of the Uvalde massacre. And Trump is ordered to testify for deposition in the New York case out of the New York State Court of Appeals ruling. And a federal court in New York has dismissed the Trump lawsuit against Letitia James, this is Legal AF Ben Micellis and Michael Popak joining you on Memorial Day weekend. Want to say to all the Legal AFers, have a great Memorial Day weekend. We hope that you are spending some time during these difficult times with family or just having a restful and relaxation day with friends, even with yourself, and having a, a weekend that you can just try to listen to some Legal AF catch up on some podcasts, but also try to get away from a lot of the noise. Michael Popak, how are you doing? I'm
1: doing great. It's a turbulent week. I'm glad I'm with you. And a a shout out to the armed forces and people who have served because that's what Memorial Day is also all about. My dad was army. So it's a it's a holiday that's near and near and dear to me as well. But uh, we got we got a lot to we got a lot to talk about. So let's jump right in.
0: Yeah, so Let's talk about uh, this case with uh, Rose out of a group of voters that sued to take Madison Cawthorn off the ballot. Madison Cawthorn took Madison Cawthorn off the ballot. So he assisted more than the voters did in that legislation through all of the conduct that he had engaged in. And to me, while The Republicans really took aim at him for a lot of the kind of private conduct that he engaged in. We should always reflect that Madison Cawthorn publicly was a horrible human being who did such disastrous things to this country and represents all of the hate, evilness, lies that is embodied in GQP ideology. So that's why Madison Cawthorn, in my mind, see you later. And that's really what I care about. But as we recall, the group of voters challenged Madison Cawthorn. The federal court in North Carolina basically ruled that this 1872 legislation that gave immunity To insurrectionists in the Civil War that gave immunity to Confederates somehow applied to all future insurrections and all future insurrectionists, which really made no sense to you and me, Popak. We talked to our legal efforts. We said that this case is being appealed to the U.S. Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. And also recall the federal court in Georgia on the Marjorie Taylor Greene case, the district court. Remember, these cases start at the district court. That's like the trial court, the lower court. If they get appealed, they go to the court of appeals. But the federal court in Georgia on the same set of facts said, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? Why would this 1872 law apply to January 6th, 2021? And in that case, Marjorie Taylor Greene was challenged she defeated that challenge um she actually won her primary recently and marjorie telegreen continues to go on and do the horrible and hateful things but nonetheless there was a challenge that took place that everyone got to see marjorie telegreen take the stand and lie about it but anyway the u.s fourth circuit court of appeals which is the court of appeals for maryland virginia west virginia north carolina and south carolina um they basically ruled what are you talking about? Lower court. This 1872 law does not apply to Madison Cawthorn. It applies to insurrectionists, 1872 and before. I think it was the right ruling. Popak, what do you think?
1: Oh, it was a great ruling. And and let's talk about what this means going forward. Madison Cawthorn, having seen the Georgia trial judge, Judge Totenberg, in the Marjorie Taylor Greene case, find that the 1872 insurrection act or amnesty act did not apply was worried having now lost that he was going to set if not precedent precedential value at at a high appellate court level because judge totenberg was at the trial court level this is the opinion of the first federal appellate court we've got 11 we've got 11 circuits this is now the fourth circuit as you said ben and it covers technically covers, you know, Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, North Carolina, and South Carolina, but it is the only appellate court, federal appellate court, that has ruled that the Amnesty Act of 1872 does not cover future insurrectionists, and that they can, uh, that provision of 14th Amendment Section 3, which we you and I colloquially refer to as the Insurrection Clause, can be applied to bar future people from the ballot they don't get the benefit of the amnesty act of 1872 and you have um, a biden appointee this is why elections matter to the fourth judge toby haytons who issued the majority decision the ruling it was really 3-0 although the two other judges one being a uh, trump appointee and one being an obama appointee wrote their own separate concurrences but they all agreed in in the decision the decision will now return to Judge Myers in North Carolina will now have to apply the 14th Amendment insurrection clause to to these issues. And so Cawthorn's lawyers said, well, why are we even doing this? It's moot because we lost in the primary. And the judge said, well, people can still vote and the election process is still going on. So this is gonna continue. So now Judge Myers is gonna have to apply the constitution to decide whether Madison Cawthorn we shouldn't even even have been in this issue. And a reminder to our legal efforts, this is interesting. Cawthorn brought the case. This was not a case brought by, you know, um, North Carolina. Cawthorn brought his case. Marjorie Taylor Greene brought her case because they thought federal court would be a better forum for them on these issues. And both of them so far have lost. The, Dan, let me just talk briefly about precedential versus persuasive. It only applies that ruling that just came down on the fourth in the states that I mentioned. However, other states and other trial lawyers can now point to the fourth circuit and to Judge Totenberg's decision at the lower court as persuasive analysis, not precedential. It's not precedential unless you're in one of those five states, but it is persuasive. And right now, it is the only law of the federal appellate court, um, unless there is a conflicting, um, a conflicting, uh, challenge. For instance, as you and I have spoken about, two Arizona representatives, uh, one being, uh, I think, Mo Brooks, have similarly been challenged off the ballot. So there could be another circuit that makes a different ruling. But this is exactly right. It's exactly what you and I said would happen. And now it establishes the beginning of a body of precedent to ultimately be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court.
0: The reason this started in federal court for everybody wondering why wasn't this filed in state court? There's something in the Constitution called the Supremacy Clause. And if there is federal law and if federal government had the authority to pass the law, if it was something within the delegated powers of Congress, then that law would be supreme over, you know, an individualized state voter law. So if there was something in the Constitution or if there was this 1872 federal law and there was a contradiction and a conflict between federal and state law. The federal law would be the law of the land. So what these politicians did is they went into federal court and said enforce our federal rights under the Supremacy Clause Why I mentioned that there also is we're going to be talking about the supremacy clause today in two other contexts. We're going to be talking about the supremacy clause with respect to gun control. And Congress passed many years ago a broad and sweeping uh, bill that basically gave immunity to gun manufacturers when third parties would use their weapons in in different settings to kill people and give gun manufacturers this sweeping immunity. There are some exceptions, and we'll talk about those exceptions in the New York federal case. And then when we talk about Trump case, this Trump case where Trump sued Letitia James, he was also saying basically his civil rights were being violated. His federal constitutional rights were being violated by Letitia James and asking the federal court, stop what the state actor is doing. Stop what the state AG is doing. And in that case, the federal courts. So what are you talking about? State AGs should be left alone. State AGs run state investigations. It's not the place under a case called Younger. It's not the place for the federal government to intervene. I think it's a 1971 case. Younger It's not the place for the for a federal government to intervene in state criminal investigations. But we'll get to that. But that's the dynamic there. And Popak, um, this was the right ruling here. I just want to point to one line by this judge. I always love when judges yeah. give like very pithy remarks. I, I
1: know the line. It's a great line. Go ahead. And he goes,
0: whether legislation from 1872 lifted a constitutional disqualification for all futures or insurrections, no matter their conduct, to ask this question is nearly <laughs> to answer it because it is the one of the silliest and stupidest questions in the world that an 1872 case. And an 1872 law rather would impact not a case, a law would impact future insurrectionists, no matter their conduct in the future. But nonetheless, a federal court appointed, you know, had ruled and had to be overturned by a court of appeals here. Let's get into this Twitter shareholder lawsuit by Elon Musk. This case was brought by a private law firm on behalf of shareholders. So it's a law firm in California, a law firm that uh, that I actually you know know about. They're a good firm, Katchet, Petrie and uh, McCarthy. I knew McCarthy because he uh, was. Uh, Previously, the president of the Consumer Attorneys of California. I remember attending when he actually became the president about a, a decade ago, but they do really, really good work there. And basically, the case is simple Elon Musk, uh, one, failed to disclose. Uh, his ownership when he had acquired more than 5%. There's something called Schedule 13G, Um, the Securities and Exchange Commission Schedule 13G. It's a form that basically requires a party who owns more than 5% of a company's total stock to fill out One, fill out the form, and two, kind of uh, in a brief way, describe perhaps what their intentions are and what they plan to do. And you want to do that because it sends a signal to the market by not filing this timely, by not filing this on time. Elon Musk was able to make an additional $150 million, perhaps slightly more because he was able to acquire it. And then once people found out about it, the stock shot up, but he should have disclosed it right away so people would find out about it um, right away. And then the other part of it is just that he's been providing false and misleading statements to the public to try to suppress the Twitter stock. A lot of his plan to buy Twitter was based on borrowing against his uh, holdings in Tesla. Tesla stock has dropped nearly 30 percent, 35 percent since the Twitter deal was announced. And people say Musk is trying to renegotiate the deal with Twitter. Uh, when Musk announced the deal with Twitter, Twitter stock shot up to close to where Elon Musk would be buying it at, um, which usually happens. But um, the, since uh, Elon Musk tweeted all of these things, Twitter stock has basically nosedived trading at about 38 dollars a share and and losing significant significant you know i think it was 8 billion dollars in value since Elon Musk began tweeting these things and what did he tweet he tweeted this is a number of things but the main tweet that's in focus here is Elon Musk says Twitter deal temporarily on hold pending details supporting calculation that spam fake accounts do indeed represent less than five percent of users. And here's Michael Popak, where I think these lawyers are just so, so smart. And there are some ways that these things are framed in complaints that I just go, wow, that was that's a really great point. So obviously we, we think that this is a shitty tweet and it's misleading. But like, look at how the lawyers frame this tweet and describe it as why it's false and misleading. And it's so true when you just break it down, it goes Musk. This is paragraph 14 of the complaint filed by the Twitter shareholders. Musk's tweet and public statement was misleading and constituted an effort to manipulate the market for Twitter shares as he knew all about these fake accounts. The statement was false because the buyout was not, in fact, temporarily on hold. There is nothing in the buyout contract that allows Musk to put the deal, quote, temporarily on hold. Moreover, Musk's statement was misleading because it stated or implied that Musk's obligation to consummate the buyout was conditioned on his satisfaction with due diligence to determine whether spam fake accounts do indeed represent less than 5% of the users. This was false because Musk had specifically waived detailed due diligence as a contingent precedent to his obligation under the buyout contract. Thus, Musk had and has no right to cancel the buyout based on any results from due diligence concerning the number of spam think accounts at Twitter. Musk then continued issuing false and disparaging tweets about Twitter in an effort to drive its stock price down further. I mean, Brilliantly stated, pithy. There's no here, here's the thing out there. People think that like lawyers write crazy words and all this here four. Like, no, like that right there. Nailed it. Nailed
1: it. And you don't leave me much, but let me see what I can contribute. Having spent time on Wall Street and handling cases like this. Firstly, I was impressed that they decided to file the case in California. Ben, Twitter is incorporated in California. Is that why we're under California law? Correct. A lot of these cases happen in Delaware, where I applied my trade for a while because Delaware usually has the monopoly on companies incorporating because of the court system down there, but because the court system in principal Delaware place is a business, it's yeah. their, their principal place of yeah. business
0: is yeah, California, 1355 market street suite. Right.
1: Right. A lot of companies are looking to avoid Delaware because it's getting a little bit less friendly to them in class action type lawsuits and what class action firms like the ones that you described will do so potently, is they will analyze the stock price and track it day by day, again, an hour by hour or minute by minute against public statements that are made or public statements that are failed to be made in a timely fashion and show how the average investor is crushed because of the gyrations in the stock price. It doesn't have to be wild gyrations. It, I've seen cases, I've been involved with cases where the the stock Delta, the difference in the stock price is $0.10, $0.05, $0.08. But remember, for every $0.05 or $0.08 move, there is a shareholder, whether it be mom and pop, whether it be a pension fund, whether it be a teacher or an average person of any type who's getting hurt by the drop in the stock price if the market is not efficient. What does that mean? That means that information that the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and state regulators, what we call blue sky regulators, which are the state equivalents of the SEC, require companies, targets, investors, and others market participants to disclose so that the market has efficient information so that people can trade. That's why there's laws against insider trading and there's an insider trading allegation in this complaint. That's why there's laws against you not disclosing timely to the market when you take a certain position percentage-wise in the company. And in this case, for instance, Elon Musk was more than two weeks late in disclosing when he hit the threshold of over 5%. Why does it have to be timely? Because the rest of the market is entitled to that information so that they can make their investment decision. Uh, And it's not being done in an opaque or closed door smoke filled room way by the big whales, the Elon Musk's, the pension funds, the others who can manipulate the market because people buy and sell based on their comments. When Elon Musk announced that he was gonna buy Twitter, it was a four four, cent, four word sentence in a tweet. I have made an offer, literally attached to whatever his offer was. And, and the, this case, when he loses and he will, he will lose, or he will settle this case. And I want to talk about that class action cases. Once there is a certification of the class and the class here is all investors who bought or sold based on statements that were either false or failed to be made by Musk at the appropriate time and were hurt by a price drop. As a result, Twitter stock having dropped 12% already since this, if he makes a false statement, I can walk from the deal, or I have due diligence rights about how many bots and fake accounts there are when he does not, or he fails to disclose a timely acquisition. Those are all price points where somebody out there, not named Elon Musk, is getting hurt in the marketplace. The SEC has also opened an inquiry, for instance, as to why he was late by two weeks. and was able to buy shares privately away from the public while the public was not aware. So he's got an SEC problem, and now he's got a class problem. Once this class of investors, which is everybody that bought or sold around these statements or omissions, is certified, and it's going to be certified by this judge probably in the next three, four, six months, Musk better settle because at that rate, if he doesn't settle, attorney's fees are running against him, major punitive damages and other things are running against him. Most of these class actions settle sometime around the class certification stage. So we're going to keep a close eye on this. So they have a very, very good prima facie case already all outlined in their whatever 100 page uh, complaint. I like where they pinpoint price drops to comments and they show places in the contract, which is like a very bare bones contract. As you said, he is buying or offering to buy Twitter effectively as is like, you know, you walk into a pawn shop, you want to buy something? Hey, I want to buy that toaster. Hey, as is no warranties. Okay, I hope it works. I'll go home and plug it in. That's, that's, his op, that's his offer to buy Twitter. It was very limited, as you said, due diligence. So to say, aha, I'm surprised there are bots and fake accounts, which, by the way, Twitter has disclosed in its own filings. Remember, Twitter is a public company. Twitter has its own obligations. And if you look at all of their securities filings, they have already acknowledged that some of the accounts that they have are fake, that they're combating them, that they're trying to shut them down. So he can't act like, you know, that scene in Casablanca where the inspector is surprised that there's gambling going on in the casino. He can't, oh, there's bots and I get to walk and avoid my billion dollars and drive down the price because even though the Tesla stock is getting slaughtered by the tech sell-off on Wall Street, but also because of the eccentricities of Elon Musk, because to invest in Tesla is to invest in sort of Musk's shenanigans. So that stock has taken a hit, So his currency to buy Twitter is gone under. And then the Twitter stock is taking a hit because of his public comments attacking the board, attacking management, attacking the business model for the companies about to acquire. You can't do that without repercussion, both at the SEC level and at the civil class action level. And now the first suit's been filed.
0: And look, we're supposed to have in our capitalist system effective and efficient markets. And effective and efficient markets had given a certain valuation for what the Twitter buyout would be. And that was there a willing buyer? A board of directors found this willing buyer and Elon Musk who claimed he wanted to buy it for, you know, $54 billion or whatever it was. And then Elon Musk had You know, buyer's remorse. He didn't want to buy it, or he wanted to buy it and manipulate the price. And so he did exactly what our free, what should not happen in our free markets, but what we see too much from this billionaire class, which is to manipulate the markets, try to drive the price down, try to, you know, destroy, you know, a Free and accurate market, so that he could, you know, seize something for less than what ultimately it's about. Crush and there. crush the public investor, like you, me, and elementary school teachers, and others. And frankly, whenever we have financial crises. We then and we you know there there oftentimes is a hey we need to do something to protect against conduct like that and then oftentimes we'll have you know this legislation that takes place post you know the 2001 uh, you know uh, internet bubble you know and then post 2002 2008 2009 recession um and the great recession and then you have people like Trump come in and then they just try to like destroy all those regulations allow rampant you know, uh, manipulation of markets. And then we go back to these, you know, we go back to these positions. So we'll keep you, we'll keep you, f- apprised uh, of what's going on here with Elon Musk. But, you know, I think this lawsuit is a meritorious lawsuit. The SEC's also began an investigation into Elon Musk as well um, for what I described earlier for not filing appropriately the 13G form amongst other conduct in connection with this, uh, you know, purported transaction. Um, but we will keep you posted. Also, Twitter is a Delaware corporation with its principal place of business in California, which is why it was brought in California because its principal place of business was in California. I want to talk about a bipartisan gun bill. Everyone wants a bipartisan gun bill. So what did Congress in its infinite wisdom do in a bipartisan basis? Popak in 2005, it passed what's known as the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act. P.L.C.A.A. is a law that protected firearm manufacturers and dealers from being held liable when crimes have been committed with their products. And this has been cited over and over again in mass shooting cases where families who lost loved ones have tried to sue gun manufacturers. In fact, we've seen cases where after the gun manufacturers have won the lawsuits based on citing this PLCAA, They've then sued the families who lost the loved ones for sanctions and recovered money. And in many cases, you know, forced these families into very difficult financial situations already having lost a loved one in a mass shooting, which I can't even imagine anything more horrible and horrific than that. So, Popak, I've been I've been speaking a lot, so I'm going to pass it to you on this New York Uh, law and legislation that was passed. um, And it was challenged by the trade group of gun manufacturers. And here, interestingly, the district court judge, despite the existence of this PLCAA, actually found that this uh, uh, bill that was passed by, it was actually passed when Cuomo was the governor and signed into law by Cuomo, that this is valid, that it meets an exception to the PLCAA because it, I guess it embodies the fact that there would be criminal conduct or recklessness in the in how the sale and distribution of the weapon is taking place from gun manufacturer to the person who engages in the shooting. And that's one of the exceptions to the PLCA. Popak, if you can break it down for us.
1: Yeah. So we're going to talk about a lot of new legal AF concepts today. We started it with the Supremacy Clause and preemption and we're going to continue it here. Let's first start with how we ended up in the Northern District of New York as a continued lesson on forum selection and forum shopping. Every time the gun manufacturers want to challenge something in a state, they try to pick the state. They try to pick the district of least resistance, where they're going to have the most judges, the chance to pick a judge in that district that may be on the conservative or right wing side of the aisle. So in New York, the the um, district of choice, although it's failed, and we're going to talk about two failures of that choice um, today here on the gun case, and when we talk about the the Trump. Uh, attempt to dismiss the New York Attorney General's suit, also filed in the Northern District of New York in front of a different judge. They pick the Northern District of New York, which is in Albany, which is at the uh, the capital of the state, at the top of the state, and covers areas like Albany, and not ironically, but sadly, Buffalo, New York, which was until four days ago, the site of the largest mass murder this year at the supermarket in Buffalo, where 10 uh, people died, nine of which were African-American. That covers the Northern District of New York. We have a judge there, however, that fortunately was an Obama appointee who got selected by lottery or randomly to hear the case, Judge May D'Agostino, who, by the way, back in the halcyon days when people got along and did what's right for this country, she was confirmed 88 to zero by the, by the Senate you don't see those numbers anymore. It just shows you that just as short as 15 years ago, there could be consensus and statesmanship around a selection. Okay. So they're already on their back foot because they got the wrong judge. Although when you look at Judge D'Agostino's background, she was a defense lawyer for hospitals and healthcare. She was a med, medical malpractice defense lawyer. So she's already defense oriented. So you would think, okay, bring it. You're you want Your defendants, you know, or in this case, you're plaintiffs, but you're really defendants and you bring in a case about wanting to avoid liability. I'm all about it. That was my practice. Let me hear it. Um, And so they bring the argument that because, as you said, and people have forgotten, unfortunately, that the Congress had passed a blanket protection over gun manufacturers being sued if the product that they sell, the gun, the long gun, the shotgun, the handgun, the AR-15, the whatever is used in a crime, before that federal legislation was passed, gun manufacturers had been losing in the court systems against victims and their families of gun violence, even though the gun was used, quote unquote, criminally, although it was, it was put to its intended use. In other words, somebody pulled a trigger and bullets came out. And that's the intended use of the product. But they were able to get not just Republicans, some Democrats to sign on to this bill as well, and we'll talk about it more as we talk in another podcast about the results of Rob Elementary, if there's going to be a will to make a changes in the gun law, and when the Second Amendment case comes out this summer, um, that you that you alluded to earlier by um, the Supreme Court, but so that federal statute says that there can be no state regulation or state law that imposes liability on a gun manufacturer, distributor, wholesaler, retailer, if that gun is used criminally. Okay. That's fine. And that is the box that judge D'Agostino established. So any law that tries to promote civil liability or give civil liability for the criminal use of a gun is off limits, but that is not what the New York law does. The New York law mindful, of the federal law and of the law of preemption and of the Supremacy Clause wrote something else. And what they wrote is that if the an industry, gun industry member who manufactures or makes or imports for sale a product and does not use reasonable, reasonable measures to prevent the product from being sold or used unlawfully in New York, consistent with New York laws, they can be liable. So it's not making them liable for the act of shooting. It's making them liable for their own conduct and not taking reasonable measures in, in the sale of their product. That could mean their advertising is inappropriate because it promotes the use of their weapon in a way that's inappropriate. Just as we saw the, the gun that was used by the shooter in uh, at Robb Elementary, three days before the uh, attack that killed 19 school children and two teachers, literally had a toddler in the ad campaign holding one of their weapons with a comment about teaching young now so they're on the right path or words to that effect. That kind of marketing would violate this law in New York on the books and, and, and give them civil liability if this ends up in the hands of somebody or, or someone like that. So it is, it is legislating and policing their conduct as manufacturers and distributors and retailers, not the ultimate use of the gun. And that's the way that New York creatively got around, I believe, successfully the law. The Jag- Judge D'Agostino agrees. Judge D'Agostino recognized the preemption doctrine and said if there is what's called one-to-one overlap between the federal law and the and the state law and it and then the federal law can then said to have it's called ouster ousted the state regulation in a particular area, but the judge said the area is narrower than what the gun manufacturers and in this case the National Shooting Sports Foundation, which is one of twelve or nineteen plaintiffs, their interpretation of the law is broader. They were like. See, federal court said no state regulation of gun sales. No, that's not what the federal law says. And if Congress wanted to do that, they would have had to write a much broader statute. So at the end, the judge said, I know I I understand the preemption doctrine. I understand the Supremacy Clause. I understand the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution that generally does not allow states to interfere with interstate commerce, which is the sale or distribution of, of your product which is still a lawful product in in the United States, but I don't find preemption. I find this law skates by, threads the needle, and therefore I'm going to allow it. Your case against the law is dismissed, which means it's gonna go ultimately, Ben, to the um, appellate court first uh, for the state, which is gonna be, uh, so. it's gonna go right to the second circuit. So it's gonna go to the second circuit court of appeals, Uh, for New York state. And uh, it'll probably find a favorable audience there for Judge D'Agostino's ruling. And then if and then it will go somehow fast track or otherwise to the U.S. Supreme Court, who has a mixed record on the Second Amendment as it relates to protecting civilians from being shot and killed.
0: I think mixed record would be very generous um, to say that I I, look eventually this ruling is going to be overturned, is my prediction. Um, uh, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it depends what panel is on the Second Circuit and it depends what the Supreme Court is going to say in their ruling on New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Remember, the Bruin decision is the concealed carry um, where the Second Amendment is. Uh, expansion of the Second Amendment is before the Supreme Court. Um, The New York state enacted very common sense legislation there, uh, basically saying certain licenses were needed to conceal carry um, within the state of New York. Um, That was challenged, brought to the Supreme Court, oral argument was held uh, in, in this past term. And the question really isn't, is the New York law going to be struck down? The question is how much broader of uh, the personal right to guns that was embodied in the District of Columbia Heller decision in 2008 and later in McDonald versus Chicago. How unfettered? is the individual's right to all guns and all weaponry um, arising out of those decisions? And how limited is the right of the state to impose any, any regulation or obligation on on guns? Yeah, I'm not sure
1: before you move on, I'm not just two things. The New York law on concealed carry is broader than just licensing. It says you have to show you have to, as the applicant, show a need for specialized protection in order to have a concealed weapon. And the issue that's going to be decided by the Supreme Court, and you're right, it's going to it's going to be against the New York law, is whether New York and other states have to convert to being what's called must issue states. They must issue a concealed weapons permit without limitation, as long as background checks and fire safety training uh, is the only is the only limitation. It's the must issue issue. And they're going to they're going to. We've said it. You've said it. I've said it. Karen said it on the pod. The must issue is going to be the law of the land. Every state, regardless of urban, suburban, farmland, country, Midwest, Rust Belt, wherever. Everyone's going to have the right to go to their local regula- regulator and get a concealed weapons permit if they pass a background check and take firearms training. That's it.
0: Yeah. And we'll see what else they say. You yeah. know, in that opinion, I mean, you know, uh, on the heels of the Uvalde shooting, we're going to get this opinion very soon in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, and you have people like Clarence Thomas, and I mean, just look at Alito's uh, draft decision um, in the decision to um, you know ban all you know rights to abortion, where he starts citing a 16th century or 17th century British jurist who who no, killed the women 14th for witchcraft. Century. <laughs> you know right. who believed that yeah. women should be yeah. murdered for witchcraft and and you know he was personally believed that you know women come from the like the ribs of a man and they should be treated like animals like that's who he cited so I, what is this decision going to say how far? Are the contours going to be where people have unlimited rights to guns? And this is on the heels of Uvalde. So we have this New York State Rifle Association Supreme Court ruling coming, you know, coming out soon. We're going to have the draft decision become the actual decision very soon um, in the decision overturning Roe v. Wade, Alito's decision. My prediction there, Popak, is that that decision basically looks identical I think they're going to remove the reference to that 14th century uh guy. I think that's but like there'll be a few cosmetic things like that, but otherwise the ruling is going to basically agree. be with the draft opinion was. Uh, I, I, think I,
1: I, t- I I I totally I totally agree with you. And and that that lineup that you just listed for the summer, this is the reason you're not letting me go
0: on vacation again. Exactly. I can't let you go on a vacation. If you if you go on. <laughs> If you go on a vacation, there's gonna have to be a new papaki in there for the day, you know, for those days, and I, I, just for those, just for those days, I'm gonna have to, you know, I'm gonna have to find someone to to replace you just for a few episodes, but no one would like that, and I know you wouldn't like that, and that's that's <laughs> me trying to make you a little bit jealous to see if uh, if I can get you to stay, but I want to, I want to <laughs> an inflatable papak. <laughs> exactly, I want to read though. I, I always think it's important when we talk about these, you know, you know, gun issues that we talk about the Second Amendment. And I just read it because it's one of these things where you and I have always when we break down the law, we have these discussions on these complex legal issues. This is where, to me, I get most frustrated as a lawyer. And it doesn't just pervade in the Second Amendment. As we talk about Trump, you start seeing lawyers like Trump's lawyer Eastman, who tries to manipulate very common sense words that like like, you know, like the vice president will count the votes. And somehow that means to an Eastman, well, it's not actually count the votes. That's subject to a statutory scheme whereby the president can actually provide his separate slate of electors. And then you have other lawyers who basically go and they also look at the law and go, oh, well, I think that's actually a great interpretation. (laughs) And meanwhile, while they're doing that, they're allowing an authoritarian regime to come into power. So when you look at what the Second Amendment says, it literally says nothing about a personal right to bear arms directly. It doesn't say that. It says a well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. How in the world do you not read into the Second Amendment the words a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security for a free state? How do you just cross that out, ignore the history that when the founders were writing this, they were talking about a militia, they were talking about something akin to a National Guard, something that would keep the state's Uh, having some power and some authority in case of federal overreach. How do you read this amendment and go, you know what? What this is also saying is that let's take away regulation, take away militia, take away the need for security of a free state. Let's just say the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed under no circumstances. There shall be no regulation. There shall be no anything, despite having those words in it. You know, and, and that's where you have these jurists, people who think they're fucking smart, read these things and go, oh, well, what they really meant was what they really meant. It literally says, I know what they meant. It says, well, regulated no. militia. <laughs> and I know, it's the words. It's right there in front of me.
1: Only because this is a tennis match and I got to hit the ball back over the net. Yes, I agree with all of that. And you know my position about about the provision. Scalia doesn't agree with you. And looking back at and how did he get there? It's not like uh, Alito pulled the abortion decision out of his backside. And that's being kind at least Scalia looked at things like the Second Amendment versions that were on state constitutions or colony constitutions leading into the creation of the U.S. Constitution to see if the well-regulated militia means a well-regulated gun ownership. Those are, you have to admit, though, those are two slightly different concepts. Regulating your militia, and how that's gonna be regulated. And reg- it doesn't say a well-regulated gun ownership, it says well-regulated reg- militia. So look, he had the opening to uncouple it and say that was just an introductory sentence that does not define the right that was being made. I'm di- making the argument, I didn't say I agree with it. I'm just telling the, our listeners what is the argument from an intellectual integrity standpoint, but you know that Ben and my position is the opposite, that if they they wanted this right, they were okay, the Founding Fathers, with this right to be regulated. They didn't want an unruly rebel class out there after we created states who, you know, who could just do an insurrection and take down the government, carrying whatever weapon that they chose. So I, I doubt if you were able to exhume the bodies of the Founding Fathers or hold a seance and ask them, you know, is this what you meant? I'm sure they'd say, no, you can regulate the guns. You, and the size and shape of them and how they're carried that, you know, and no, what, what does it AR 15 do? No, we never are. You ever see our weapons, our weapons, you know, I had to put a a, a a ball and, and powder, you know, with a, you know, in a musket, no, no regulate. But, you know, this is the argument that we have with the, you know, with, with, with the Bible, what would Jesus think, you know? And, and the problem is people like Alito and the other right wing supermajority on the Supreme Court, mold and, and bend and fold the Constitution to meet their policy and political ends. It's all reverse engineering. So it doesn't yeah, the, matter what yeah, it says. The, the, the.
0: The, the words banality of evil kind of come to mind because as Scalia starts, you know, splicing and, you know, thinks he's like some fucking wizard or something. Oh, I got the right word. And maybe that's an introductory paragraph. We have 18 year olds who are mentally ill or sick terrorist 18 year olds, whatever, taking guns and just going into get buying AR-15s without any whatsoever, you know, regulation. And on their 18th birthday, they go and they just start shooting up schools with AR-15s Weapons designed to kill as many people as possible quickly. And and this isn't an issue of like, you know, do I believe people should have guns? Sure. Yeah. Go go hunt. Go have a handgun in your house. Do what you need to do to protect you. Do I think someone should have an AR-15, an 18 year old? you know, who just turns 18 should, should get an AR-15 and buy all the ammunition. world. Well, no, that's the stupidest thing in the world. Why? Why? We I mean, you see this video on HBO where the underage kid, he goes in and he tries to buy porn and cigarettes and a bunch of things and he gets rejected from all of that. Absolutely. <laughs> no. And, and he gets laughed at. Then he goes to the gun show to buy the gun. And they're like, well, here you go. And he walks out, you know, he walks out with the gun. But I don't think that, you know, normal, regular guns should be taken away from people. And I think people should have guns, just not AR-15. or 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 weapons of like of of mass death like that. It's wild.
1: Stay on that. Stay on that point you make because it's a really, really good one. I know, you know, it's a really good one. When this country had a crisis in drunk driving deaths at the hands of young, uh, young drivers, 18 year olds, you know, immature, malformed mind yet drivers. What did we do as a nation? Well, we did one thing. One, we added seatbelts, and and the car industry was against that. Then we required um, airbags, and the car industry, i.e. the gun manufacturing industry in our scenario, is against that. But we found the political will to do it nonetheless. Then we raised the drinking age. When I was a kid, just off to college, the drinking age in most states was 18. It got bumped the year I went to college to 21. There's a reason for that. It's because we did not wanna link things like driving with alcohol. We wanted distance and age and maturity. Why don't we want that with an AR-15 or a Bushmaster or any kind of semi-automatic or automatic weapon? Why don't we wanna uncouple the kid that just got out of school, that's still smarting from whatever abuse he took at the hands of his classmates because that's all these kids, right? The Columbine kids, the, the killer, uh, the coward killer in Buffalo, the coward killer in the elementary school in Usvalde. They are fresh off of their own formative year high school experience. And now it's payback and retribution because they can go egged on by social media, egged on by the gaming community that they're on, they go and buy that weapon and it is sold to them lawfully. And then places like Texas take it one step further. You can't buy a handgun, but you can buy something that's characterized and misclassified as a hunting gun, and that can be an AR-15. So the kid could not have bought a handgun in Texas, Ben, but he could buy a a weapon of mass destruction that he used, and we know the timeline now in Ushvaldi, and that 40-minute gap between the time the police broke in, finally, the federal officers, the Border Patrol broke in and stormed that room. He had 40 minutes, three magazines, three clips, and he killed everyone in that room, except for, I think, one or two. Everyone. And he was able to buy that lawfully in the state of Texas because Governor Abbott signed a law to make Texas a Second Amendment sanctuary. You remember that, Ben?
0: Yeah, he made it. And and then he and then he wants to blame it on mental health, but then defund mental health programs in the state. And so by their own, by the way, I I do not blame this on mental illness. I blame this on, you know, rampant guns. And these people are terrorists who shouldn't have guns in the freaking first place. But even if you accept the argument that these are mentally ill people, well, then mentally people are getting these guns. You know, when, you know, based on your laws, if that's the argument that they're, you know, if that's the argument that they're making, and both in Buffalo and in Texas, these were 18 year olds, 18 year olds who got these weapons basically right upon turning the age of 18, our hearts and prayers and not just that, but our work goes out to the families of Uvalde. And we're not just going to talk about it and, and, send Buffalo, hearts, and Buffalo and which is Buffalo only two, two weeks ago. Uh, Hard and horrific to think that that was two weeks ago, and already there's been another mass shooting that, in many ways, eclipses it in the minds of of the nation, which it should. And it's just it's it's horrible and horrific. Want to talk about? Trump right now, Trump big losses. I mean, we, you, you did a funny tweet, Popak, where you, you, <laughs> we, I, I, we did a funny back and forth where you were like, you know, another great legal AF uh, prediction. Donald Trump loses the federal lawsuit against Letitia James trying to stop her investigation into him for his uh, inflating of all his valuations and all his other conduct. This is the civil investigation that she's um, in charge of, and I was like. Yeah, look, to be fair on that one, it's fairly easy to predict Trump's going to lose these really stupid lawsuits that he files. Like that other ridiculous lawsuit he filed, I forget what it was even about. Remember, he sued like 80 people, like in Hillary in Clinton Florida. and everyone? It's, it's pending in, in the
1: Southern District of
0: Florida in front of Judge Middlebrooks. Like he's going to lose that 80 times. And so <laughs> we're going to get 80 W's in our predictions that Trump is going to lose because literally, has he even served that thing yet? Because my prediction is he doesn't want to serve it because he's going to lose. And if he expects Alina Haba or whoever his lawyer is, that she's going to do 80 oppositions he's to all oh and four, that she's. Uh, all. <laughs> I mean, it's just the worst. Popok, take us through these. Yeah. There's these two things that happen kind of a day apart from each and, other. Right. And what's Trump the and- common
1: denominator, Ben? You're going to this is here. You can do a promotion of one of our podcasts. The common denominator in both cases is.
0: Uh, Trump's an idiot and Michael uh, Cohen, okay. Michael, Michael.
1: <laughs> I, I just gave you a softball to promote Maya culpa. Michael Cohen and his testimony is the key to the analysis of both the Northern District of New York judge, who, who we predicted spot on that this was going to happen. Judge Sanis, who just dismissed on Friday in a 43 page ruling, which I posted on the Legal AF Twitter community feed. Um, finding where Trump and the Trump organization argued that Letitia James and the New York Attorney General civil case was brought in bad faith to harass him, has no legal merit, and that a federal judge should step in the middle of a state civil proceeding, which is already being supervised by a state trial judge and Judge Ergaron, but under a doctrine called the Younger Abstention Doctrine, which you referenced earlier, the federal court should step in and take uh, Letitia James off the case and dismiss and stop the civil investigation of whether Trump and the Trump Organization and the kids inflated and deflated asset valuation in order to line their pockets. And the judge said in that one, where it's the Michael Cohen connection there, she said, I see the timeline that you've laid out in your complaint. And she repeats it in her 43 page decision. She takes whatever Trump says as true for the purposes of a motion to dismiss, which is the proper standard in federal court and in state court. And she says, I get it. She was elected in November, but she does in November of 2018, but she doesn't start the prosecution for four months later in March of 2019. And what is the trigger event, the judge says? It wasn't her animus towards Donald Trump, even though she campaigned saying, if I'm elected the new sheriff in town, I'm going after Trump and the Trump Organization. The trigger, Judge Sanna said, in the Northern District of New York, was Michael Cohen's testimony in February of 2019, in which he talked about under oath, for which he also went to jail, not the testimony, but for his own crimes, and it was subsequently released that there was asset inflation and deflation commonplace at the Trump organization, inflation in order to get loans, deflation in order to save on taxes. It was that testimony that a month later, the judge, uh, uh, the uh, attorney general brought her or opened her civil investigation. And so the judge said, I don't see anything wrong with that at all. And their argument Alina Haba, Owen for Alina Haba, she'll be Owen a career with Trump by the time this is all done. Was that there is a bad faith exception to the younger doctrine? And the bad faith exception says that generally, the younger doctrine says generally a federal court will not interfere with a ongoing state investigation or proceeding at all. And that is a that is a um, that is a view of you know states' rights and comedy and federal versus states as outlined in the U.S. Constitution, and the Supremacy Clause and what's reserved to the states and all of that in our structure that we learned in first, first year in civil civil uh, civics class in high school or elementary school. But there is an exception. And the exception is if the civil proceeding has been brought in bad faith to harass or has been brought in bad faith because there's no reasonable likelihood of success and it was simply brought, you know, to kind of drive somebody crazy, harass them, then a federal judge can intervene and stop it. So their argument was, yes, look at all of Letitia James's comments about going after me and bringing me down. And that's bad faith. Alina, Alina Haba, in her email after she lost, she said, oh, if this isn't bad faith, I don't know what is. This is a lawyer who's never tried a younger abstention doctrine case in her life, but you know she, now she's the great scholar on the issue. But in, in any event, the judge said, no, the thing that lit the fuse for the investigation is Michael Cohen's testimony. Now, why is that important? Because when we go to the next ruling, which is the appellate court that we predicted, that sits above the Judge Ergaron, who is supervising you know, at the state level Letitia James's investigation, which is the first department court of uh, the first department appellate court in New York, which I'm a member of. That's who admitted me into the bar 30 years ago. They are the first level appeal court. The highest court, as we've talked about in the past in New York, is the Court of Appeals for New York. So the first department sided with Judge Ergaron in a three zero vote and cited again the Michael Cohen testimony and saying that. Judge Ergaron has the power to order the Trump, the Trumpers, the Trump kids, Trump, to sit for a civil deposition, which we'll talk about in a minute, what's going to happen next, because the investigation is a pro- is proper. They rejected all of the same arguments that were raised at the federal level about the impropriety of the investigation, the alleged harassing element of the investigation. And again, two different courts not working together, work with different clerks and different different body of law, different body of facts, concluded the same thing. That if Letitia James did not follow the lead that Michael Cohen's testimony provided about the inflation and deflation fraudulently of assets, she would have been a, she would have committed a dereliction of duty. She is a prosecutor, well, in this case, she's not a prosecutor. She is a civil attorney general who has the power and the obligation to investigate matters of civil fraud. You have a witness who has testified under oath that this happened in the organization. And the courts are like, how can she not investigate that? It would be a dereliction of duty if she didn't. And so based on the Michael Cohen testimony, we have federal court that dismisses once and for all the Trump case. To try to get letitia james off the off off of him that will then go up to the second circuit ultimately and we have the second highest level appellate court in new york who said that they have to sit the kids and trump have to sit for deposition and he'll probably take some sort of appeal to the court of appeals and he's going to lose there the court of appeals is going to order these these people to sit for a deposition it's probably going to happen in the next 90 days And the Second Circuit is going to, I predict, is going to confirm and affirm Judge Sanis's decision that Letitia James did absolutely nothing wrong and that the federal court can't interfere with her investigation. So let's fast track. So what happens, Ben, when he sits for that deposition? Because I've seen people tweeting about the application of the Fifth Amendment in a civil setting. What will ultimately happen?
0: I think ultimately he will. Look, I think he's going to answer the questions. He'll say a lot of things that he doesn't know. He's going to say other people handle it. And then they'll all kind of say that. And he'll say he's not really you know, he's not really sure. Do do you think he'll take the fifth? I don't I mean, I, I don't think that he'll take the fifth. Well, let's um, talk in, about it in, that. A, let's look, in look. a civil setting. If you you could take the Fifth yeah. Amendment in a civil case, but uh, you would have an adverse inference against you would lose the civil case by taking the Fifth Amendment in the civil case. But
1: we, so which is which is the one that he's more worried about? Because in every filing that he's made, He says that this is really Letitia James's attorney general uh, investigation is really a criminal investigation masquerading as a civil investigation because she's working so closely with the Manhattan DA's office, who is doing a criminal investigation that's been rejected both on the federal side and on the state side. But my question to you is this, Ben, which is the one that he's more worried about losing a what effectively is a money case only and being found to be a fraud. And he's been found to be a fraud in the past already. And his other business dealings, including by Letitia James, the attorney general related to the Trump Foundation and that kind of thing. Is he worried about that or is he worried about the Manhattan D.A. or other criminal prosecutions for which whatever he says in the civil case here could be used against him there? Because if he's worried more about criminal than money, I think he takes the Fifth Amendment more than you're predicting.
0: Yeah, I think he's worried more about uh, criminal, but I I, I think, I mean, he's clearly worried more about criminal. It's not even a close call. Um, But I I just, I, I can't, it'll be interesting to see. I can't imagine him taking the fifth. I think he'll give kind of double speak answers and just say he doesn't recall. He can't recall. And, um, you know, he, he, they would take attorney-client privilege objections. They'll object on all those grounds and then try to drag this out another few years based on the objections. Okay. I think that's what they'll probably do. They'll make meet, pointless objections. They'll go to the court. They'll try to get motions to compel him to answer. They'll then try to appeal all of those. Um, but, um, but we'll, but, but look, we'll see what, we'll see how that goes. But Michael Popak on this Memorial day, I want to say thank you so much for spending the time with me and with the legal AFers out there. Everybody go to dot store.midastouch.com. store.midastouch.com. We got great gear on their store.midastouch.com. Make sure you check it out. And uh, we'll see you next time on the next Legal AF, Popak. It's always great spending time with you doing this. Yeah, uh, it's a tough, it's high, it's tough the, week, but we got to break we we got to break it down for people so that they understand them. Yeah,
1: it's a, it's a highlight of my week to be able to do this with you and with the Midas
0: Mighty and the Legal AFers. Absolutely. We'll see everybody next time on the next Legal AF. Ben Micellis, Michael Popak. If it's the weekend, it's Legal AF, breaking down the key legal issues for you in ways you can understand. See you next time on Legal AF. Shout out to the Midas Mighty.